welcome to So It's a Show, a podcast where we attempt to keep up with Lorelai and Rory's pop culture references on Gilmore Girls. I'm Kyla. And I'm Taylor. And we've got a fun uh, mishmash of an episode. We did the mash. We did the monster monster mash. Because it's almost Halloween, and I wanted to call this episode Halloween Spooktacular. But Kyla shut me down because we're literally not talking about Halloween at all this episode. <laughs> We've had some um, one scary thing ish, so I guess <laughs> that's true. We have one scary topic <laughs> to discuss today, and we've done Halloween ish episodes like mm-hmm. House of Horrors back in the day. Yep. Uh, I feel like there was another one, Misery. Yeah. Oh, freaky. So if you're feeling spooktacular, go back and listen to those. Because I only get to use the word spooky about one month a year, and I love the word spooky. So. It's a good one. Yes, going to use it as much as I can today, because it's still October. I say go for it. Spooktacular idea. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Taylor, I made an observation recently while watching some episodes of Gilmore Girls. I kept feeling like I was hearing the same place referenced. And but I couldn't I couldn't remember which episodes or what who said it and I finally it all came together. And I want to tell you about it. Please. Taylor, does the name uh Shakey's ring a bell? I knew you were going to say that. I don't know how. <laughs> we did not discuss this beforehand. But I might have mentioned it to you before when I first started Maybe. Noticing. I only have noticed it like one time in Gilmore Girls. And it's only because it's like a very funny Kirk scene that I'm thinking of. Ah. Um, yeah, I kept noticing characters saying that they were going to go to Shakey's. It was all different people, though, so it's very odd, but I finally found there are three episodes where Shakey's is talked about, and what really brought this all together is that I was driving down the road the other day, and I saw Shakey's. And because I live in near the Warner Brothers lot where this was filmed, I just kind of have a feeling that this is the Shakey's that Amy Sherman-Palladino would have known. I love that. Do we know if there are really shakies in Connecticut? There are not. I could not find any. Oh, wow. I wonder if in the early 2000s there were or if Maybe. that was just a mistake. Maybe. Quote so the first person to reference shakies, guess who, guess who it was? Was it Kirk? No, it was Emily. Oh, really? Right. The person you'd least expect. So it's in season two, episode six, presenting Lorelai Gilmore. Uh, This is the cotillion, or not the cotillion, but, or yeah, it was the cotillion. That's what it's called. Rory's cotillion. She, Emily arrives at the place and she doesn't like how it looks. And she says, I wanted my granddaughter to be presented to society in a beautifully, in a beautiful, elegant ball gown, ballroom, not a shakies. Mmm. So Emily says it. And then in season two, episode 21, is is at Lorelai's graduation when one of her other people who are graduating says, hey, a bunch of us are going to Shakey's afterwards for pizza. You want to mm. come? Is that the Seth McFarlane cameo? Yep. Okay. 
And then the one you are thinking about, yes, I assume, is the Festival sure of Living so. Art, season yes. four, episode seven. This is when Kirk Kirk embodies his vision of Jesus, <laughs> and and he meet mean his disciples. Simon the Canaanite, don't leave me hanging. I say we go celebrate. How about Shakey's? And then it becomes a whole thing because the town troubadour who is playing Judas say this says, I heard you and all the apostles are going to Shakey's later. Kirk's like, you're wrong. We're not going to Shakey's. And that's what they fight about later. Because they did go to yes. Shakey's. So, and that's the one I remember. Yeah, I think that's where it really stood out to me was because they talk about it multiple times. But anyways, just a random... Shakey's to me sounds like the stereotypical name for a diner, like Shakey's, right? It just sounds so general, but it mm-hmm. is a real place. And looking at their website, it's really not a huge chain, it looks like. I mean, it is a chain, but it is only on the West Coast, it looks like. I have never been to a Shakey's pizza parlor. I have not established either. I want to now, though. Uh, yes. When... It was opened in 1954 when Sherwood Shakey Johnson opened the first Shakey's Pizza Parlor in a remodeled grocery store on 57th and J Street in Sacramento. Hmm. All sorts of fun things. Uh, right now, when you buy a large uh, PCM combo, <laughs> you get medium pizza for $5.99. Wow, great deal. And they do have to-go options. So Good. So anyways, there's just my random observation from Gilmore Girls and I just wanted to share this is the place for random Gilmore Girls observations I don't know where else in the world those places are but I know this is one of them definitely it's on the list Mm -hmm. yeah all right but should we get into what we really want to talk about yeah finally I didn't want to talk about shaky so thanks for (laughs) moving on Kyla fine Judas (laughs) You are not. I can't even make that joke. That sounds so horrible. Okay, the episode we are talking about tonight, today, this afternoon, whenever you might be listening, is Gilmore Girls 421, Last Week Fights, This Week Tights, (laughs) a.k.a. This Week Air Pants. (laughs) All-time great TJ episode. You know my favorite part. We talked about it last episode, but guess what? I recorded the clip, and we're going to play it right here. Liz, do you want to tell TJ how you feel? Yes. TJ. Yeah. Best TJ moment, hands down. I laugh so hard every time. (laughs) This episode first aired on May 11th, 2004. Not May the 4th. And the IMDb plot summary is, with Lorelai's help, Mrs. Kim and Lane work out their new relationship. Thanks in part to her grandmother, Rory gets stranded on a bad date where she turns to Dean for help. Liz and TJ's renaissance wedding in the town square has Luke and Lorelai enjoying each other's company. So much so that Luke asks Lorelai for another date and on his way out of town. Jess asks Rory to leave everything and run away with him. Very thorough plot summary. It even mentioned Lane and her mom. And I know. And they're left out. And I love the joke of when Mrs. Kim walks in and says to Zach and Brian, you are girls. Because yes. she, like, can't wrap her mind around the idea of Lane living with boys. Yeah. And they were happy to be whatever they need to be with their little <laughs> unkept 
ties that were askew. (laughs) And also, Brian, going through the list of teas, would you like oolong, (laughs) sleepy time, chamomile? (laughs) Yeah. Like something oolong, how he says it. Yeah. Yes. Good episode. Great episode, actually. Yes. It is peak Luke and Lorelai, peak Dean Jess love triangle drama, and just Liz and TJ's wedding. Comedic set mm-hmm. piece for the yeah. ages. High drama, high comedy. Yep. Can I also tell you a fun fact about this episode? You with your fun facts. Bring it on. <laughs> you know I love my fun facts. So in the storyline where Rory gets stuck on a bad date, did you catch who plays her bad date? Yeah, from Veronica Mars. Yes, Teddy Dunn, who goes on to play Duncan Kane on Veronica Mars, a show you and I both love. Mm-hmm. Well, I saw in the IMDb fun facts and I, or trivia, Sorry, that's my phraseology, fun fact. (laughs) I tried to corroborate this with a reliable news source. I could not, but I did see lots of chatter about it on the internet, and it makes sense to me that this would be true. So take it with a grain of salt, but I think it's probably true. According to the IMDb trivia, Graham, a.k.a. Teddy Dunn, was going to become a love interest for Rory in season five. When Veronica Mars got picked up, Teddy Dunn was no longer available, so the writers recast her new love interest with Matt Zuckery as Logan. Hmm. So we could have seen a different version of the show where Teddy Dunn was her love interest. He's such a nice guy character on Veronica Mars that it's hard to imagine him as Logan on Gilmore Girls. Yeah. But, huh, interesting. You know what? I don't love Logan, but I like him better in this scenario, I think. You would have liked him better if he would have been played by... No, I think I like Matt Zucri as Logan better than Mm. Teddy Dunn as Graham. Because you and I have talked about this. I don't think it's Teddy Dunn's performance that's the problem on Veronica Mars, but that character has literally nothing to do. Yeah, he is, yeah, there's, he's not interesting at all. No, and I don't think that's the actor's fault. No, I think they, the, like, they yeah, give him nothing. They do give him some, though, because he has these, these outbursts that he takes medication for, and, but you know what? It's like they never take it all the way. They just kind of mention it and then move on. And exactly. Then, yeah, interesting. He doesn't really have a personality. He really no. just, like, is this poor little rich boy. Yeah. And, like, you feel sorry for him because of his life circumstances. But, like, he doesn't really have a personality. No. Plus, you know, I'm super Team Logan in the Veronica Mars world. So. Yeah. And in this case, I'm Team Logan, too. What is happening? Weird. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Okay, well, fun fact for you there about this episode. Uh, What do you think of this episode? It sounds like you love it. Uh, Yeah, I love this episode. Watched it recently. Luke and Lorelai dancing. It's great. So good. Him asking her out and her, like, leaning back like, what? (laughs) Physical (laughs) comedy. Um, Yeah, I think it's great. 
But there were a lot of references in this episode that we were a little unsure about, but they just weren't enough to have a whole episode. So we're doing another mishmash. We've done this before, but we found mm-hmm. several that together together form a beautiful episode, we think. We think so. Because a lot of these, we didn't feel like we could talk about for a full 45 to minutes to an hour. There's not that much to figure out. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when we saw them mentioned in the episode, we were like, I don't what even know what they're this? talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so good mysteries, but easy to solve, or quick to solve. So Taylor, mm-hmm. you want to solve our first mystery? Sure will. All right. Well, we're going to kick it off with one of the all-time great ideas for a podcast, a visual reference. (laughs) Uh, We will have a picture in our Tumblr, and of course I suspect you are the kind of person, if you are listening to this, to be open to watching Gilmore Girls. But in the cold open, we get to see Jess Mariano back in Stars Hollow, and he is sitting on a bench making awkward eye contact with Lorelai Gilmore. Is that the bench that we sat on when we visited? Oh, I hope so. I don't actually know. I'm sure they the move right the benches spot, all though, over the place. <laughs> You're just in the right spot. It's true. So we're going to say this is the bench you and I sat on for mm-hmm. sure. It's canon. And on this nice little park bench right next to the gazebo... He is reading what looks to be an issue of Punk Planet magazine. And inside, as the camera pans around, you see he's really reading the book that Luke gave him, the self-help book called You Are Not Alone. And as far as I can tell, You Are Not Alone is not a real book. There are probably books called that, but the one shown in this show is so not there, a real So there's no friend named Philip. <laughs> this friend let's call him philip (laughs) and he reads punk planet just kidding as far as i can tell the book that luke gives to jess is a figment of the paladinos and their writing staff's imagination however punk planet is indeed a very real magazine Mm. and if you want further proof of this i do (laughs) well glad you asked I also, in my research, was just looking up Punk Planet, and I found a very nifty Twitter account that is pretending to be Jess Mariano's group of small town publishers, or I'm sorry, like small press publishers, and we will share their Twitter (laughs) in our Tumblr, because they really get snaps for helping me with this research, because as I'm doing this, they happen to tweet, like, a few hours before a picture of Jess Mariano wearing a Punk Planet t-shirt in season two. Oh my goodness. Nice. Yeah, so in the episode 215, Lost and Found, while he's cleaning Lorelai and Rory's gutters, he's wearing a Punk Planet t-shirt. Okay, so this is, look at that, like, we have him wearing a Mm -hmm. t-shirt two seasons later, reading the magazine. Mm-hmm. That's that's impressive. Mm-hmm. So a little bit about this Punk Planet magazine. If you're not familiar with it, it, there's probably a good reason for it. It was never a huge publication, and it is no longer going. This was, I thought, a nice little description of it from the AV Club. They wrote a tribute to it upon its demise. 
and said even when it began as a newsprint zine in 1994, the Chicago-based publication treated punk rock as an idea, not a sound. Using punk's antagonistic spirit as a guiding principle, Punk Planet transcended stereotypes to chronicle the progressive underground community from thoughtful band interviews to exceptionally thorough investigative features. So it started with the music, but it led to a lot of other interests they thought Punk Planet kind of people would be interested in. It was a bi-monthly magazine. It was independently published, and it helped a lot of independent musicians and other independent artists like other zines and books get off the ground. They also had a lot about politics in there, and they had a lot of columns. And it actually became a pretty big deal over the 13 years that it was up and running for the size of magazine that it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, However... As you know, this little thing called the internet came along. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And as you know, that is, was a pretty big game changer in the world of publishing from people who started pre-2000 to going into the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And they were already independent. I think they had a lot of trouble getting realistic ad revenue (laughs) that would actually support their publishing needs. People actually love this magazine enough that they try to throw benefit concerts and things to keep it alive longer. But finally, with issue number 80, they had to call it a day and say, this can no longer go on. And Daniel Sinker, who was one of the founders, he says, as a business, Punk Planet was destined to fail from day one. He's saying this with a laugh, so don't cry for him, Argentina. (laughs) Our business plan was, let's set our ad rates as low as possible so that the smallest record labels can afford a good-sized ad space so that they can have a national outlet to let people know about their releases. And, you know, if there's any money left, let's turn that around to the writers who are writing these pieces and giving them a little something. And let's sell them on newsstands, which, you know, is a money-losing proposition. Yeah. So they were just not set up for financial success, but I think it was a pretty beloved magazine from the people who followed it. And I want you to know, if you are interested in checking out Punk Planet, you can find scans of all the issues online. And I sure did find the (laughs) issue that Jess was reading. Oh my goodness, Taylor. Yes. (laughs) It is issue number 60 which is March and April 2004, which makes sense because this came out in May 2004. Wow. So that would have been like the last issue they could have possibly done while filming. The main headline on this magazine, which just wowie, what a time capsule. <clears throat> the final countdown, the underground gears up to upseat Bush, your guidebook for a new tomorrow. The time is now with an illustration of George W. Bush on the cover. For the record, this was $4.95 in the U.S. and $6.95 in Canada. Other headlines on here include um, interviews with Found Magazine, a band called These Arms Are Snakes. Um, There was another one about a music festival in Beijing and um, an interview with a guy named Craig Thompson. I want you to know I flipped through this entire issue. It's 159 pages. Wow. A lot of these pages are ads for bands and albums. So they really were, like, 
committed to this mm-hmm. idea of getting other a lot of music out of there. Yeah. A lot of bands and musicians, this really was the focus of the magazine. But there are a lot of other things. So I'll just give you a little sampling of what's in this issue that Jess might have been reading about mm-hmm. before and after he did his um, personal growth development in You Are Not Alone. There is a letter to the editor that one of the big topic points is about how you pay 99 cents for a song on iTunes. Remember those days? Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a lot of columns. So (laughs) in one of these columns, somebody was telling a story about how in eighth grade they had to debate the death penalty. And there was a girl named Jenny in his group who had a dead Kennedy's t-shirt on and now he likes the dead Kennedys. And he was like, you know what? Maybe if this sensitive girl in eighth grade liked the dead Kennedys, there's hope for us all. It's kind of where we ended on that one. Interesting. There's also another column talking about people who say they're going to move if George W. Bush is reelected. They're going to leave all the United right. States. Does that ring a bell at all? You know, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> We're not a political podcast. <laughs> There's also an article about how to build a fire from scratch. Wow, why not? That, okay. <laughs> and Burn this there's a s- second part of a feature. So presumably there was a first part of the feature in the previous issue about how to bake bread. And then there are 25 pages of very brief album reviews, like a couple sentences. And mm-hmm. I just like some of these band names are amazing because they just go in alphabetical order and it's like 25 pages of one paragraph reviews in like nine point font wow so you've got bands like barnacled bodies in the basement cable the cables candy sniper cream abdul babar (laughs) dear diary i seem to be dead he who corrupts all one word missouri loves company and then this might be my favorite. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start. That must be I guess like, like a, a video game. game. That know. has to be. Literally huh. the only artist I recognized is they were reviewing a lecture by Noam Chomsky. And I can't tell you anything nice. about Noam Chomsky, but I know the name. They say like um, girls. Yes. See, that's why I know it. Yeah. And then the cover story, just to give you a little more context on this George W. Bush story. Which, by the way, there's another episode where Jess says, Nice spin, you should work for Bush. So this is totally on brand for him. Uh-huh. The cover story is self-described as profiles of nine people and organizations doing their part to take back our country and posters by eight artists and designers free for you to copy and distribute. Including... <laughs> I just want to make it clear. This is me reporting. This is not me giving an opinion. There was one poster that's like designed to look like a campaign ad and it says vote George W. Bush, but the picture is of Osama bin Laden. Oh. (laughs) Not of George W. Bush. Oh my. I just, what a time capsule. Wow. Remember those days? Yeah. So this is what Jess wants everyone to think he's reading. Mm Mm-hmm. That sounds very on brand for him. I Yeah. And like I just wonder, the fact that they had the most recent copy, did ASP like subscribe to that? Well, they were very newsstand focused. 
So they could have easily popped over to a nearby bookstore and picked one up. Yeah. Huh. I want to read this. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I will share a link to the scanned issue that Jess was looking at. Did not appear to be illegal, and I can't imagine this punk planet would be resurrecting from the dead to mm-hmm. try and sue us for this, but I don't know. It's spooky season. You never know. <laughs> oh, really made that work, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> nice. So that's what you need to know about Punk Planet. I like it. Taylor, I want to talk about not not a publication, but a man. A myth. A real person. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I want to talk about... Jack Skellington. I mean, Jack LaLanne. <laughs> Spooky's getting to me. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> what a transition. You're welcome. It, you inspired it. Jack LaLanne. Uh, ever heard of him? No. Well, Except when Suki mentions him. No. Suki and Lorelai have. They're the best in the state. I stand by them. They're puny. They're tasteless. Puny? These are not puny. If they're small enough to shove up our son's nose, they're too small. No way could you shove one of these up Davy's nose. Bet you five bucks. Get him in here. Hey, guys. You probably shouldn't shove a radish up your son's nose. Just thinking out loud. All right. I'll take these if it's all you've got. Well, don't do me any favors. You two are back big time. That actually felt good. <laughs> like I had a Jack LaLanne workout. <laughs> Dead or alive? Jack LaLanne? Dead. No, alive. Oh, no, that's going to bug me. So also later in the episode, they're trying to figure out, they do figure out that he was alive at the time. Oh. <laughs> so Suki comes back. He's alive. Who? Jack LaLanne. I just Googled him. Speaking of the internet. So Jack LaLanne, he did die in 2011, so he has passed now. But he was a workout guru. He's considered the grandfather of exercise or the grandfather (laughs) of something like exercise. And he was around long before Richard Simmons. That was my question. Is he like Richard Simmons? He, he's beyond Richard Simmons. He's before he, Richard Simmons is Richard Simmons because Jack LaLanne was Jack LaLanne. Oh. Jack Lane was born September 26, 1914. Whew, that feels like a long time ago because it was over 100 years ago. That That's a long sure time. Sure was. He was born in San Francisco. And he described himself as a sugarholic. He said as a kid he had a terrible attitude, acted out, was not physically fit. Until he was 15, which... Granted, that's not a very long life, like, prior to. I mean, lots of kids like sugar. But at age 15, (laughs) he realized, you know what? I think I'd like to be in better shape and be in better health. He was sick. He just... 15, that's kind of... That's pretty impressive to, like, make that decision at that age. Mm -hmm. But he became health and fitness guru, published books, and he even had his own TV show. The Jack Lane Show, from 1951 to 1985. And it was, his audience was mostly women at home. It was just a, uh, like, half-hour show with commercial breaks. And he would take you through a workout routine. 
So I watched episode one and I completed a Jacqueline workout. You did? I most certainly did. I do not feel sore today, the day <laughs> after. Um, I'll tell you that much. But it was just very simple moves that you can do. His only prop was a chair hmm. to sit or to hold on to for balance. And there were like high knees and lifting your leg back behind you, lifting it out to the side. He had you like do bicep curls, but without holding anything. So, okay. so did everybody look like the Mrs. Maisel workout class? Um, Taylor, don't get ahead of me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it did not look like Mrs. Maisel's class. But you're on the right track. So, mm. he he seemed very nice and very genuine in his desire to get people feeling better. He did also talk a lot about looking better, but it was in a very, like, encouraging, you-can-do-it kind of way. It didn't feel demeaning. Now, granted, someone's on TV right now hosting a workout show. Probably they would talk more about the health than the physical look. But, mm-hmm. um, anyways, uh, let's, uh, let's watch a little. And now, here is a man who will show you how to feel better, look better, Jack Lalane. Now get up on your feet, that's it, and give me a great big smile. All right, that's it, now stay right there. Now put your hands on your hips. Now first take your right leg lifted up, then your left leg. Now I'm sure you can do, sure you can do that. Ready, begin. One, two, three, four, one, and two, and up and down, and one, and two, and three, and four, and rest. One, two, three. I love the old-timey organ music. That really sells it for me. And the jumpsuit with, like, is that a little pocket square in his jumpsuit? I believe it is. He keeps it fancy on the on your TV screen. <laughs> so in between, you know, he'll, you know, do some workout moves with you and then talk about what physical health is. And keep in mind, I mean, this was 1951 when he started this. We kind of just got into more processed foods, McDonald's. Plastic, I mean, just all sorts of quick and easy everything. And so, health, like physical health, was starting to be, as far as like weight goes, was starting to be an issue. So, anyway, so he was on the forefront of talking about hey, we need to think about exercising because we don't naturally move as much as we used to. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite to our days of the computer as we are now, but. <laughs> You know, that internet ruined everything. Killed Plunk Planet, killed our fitness. (laughs) When he was 21, so even before his show, 1936, he opened one of the nation's first fitness gyms in Oakland, California. (laughs) And that became a prototype for dozens of gyms that he later opened, or at least that bore his name. So his kids continue to open up gyms. His grandson, I think it is, just opened up a gym a few years ago in, in Oakland. Cool. So they're still doing that. Sounds like a dynasty. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as I was watching this, I did think of the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel workout. And then I thought, you know, Abe Weissman. <laughs> did, did he kind of look like uh, Jacqueline at one point? Sure enough. Abe Weissman's romp special outfit for his outdoor calisthenics, <laughs> yep, was actually modeled after 
Jacqueline's romper on his TV show. So they both are a one-piece, long pants, short sleeve, have a collar, (laughs) and have a pretty little belt in the middle. Oh, my gosh. And we'll have both photos up on our Tumblr. But that scene with Abe Weissman and his son-in-law... Uh-huh. I have never laughed harder in Marvel's Miss Maisel. That is my favorite scene of all time. <laughs> Let's take a listen. Look, Joel, up here in the mountains, I do different kinds of things. You drink a lot of tomato juice. Not just the tomato juice. I have a morning routine. Every day before the sun's up, when everyone's asleep, I do my special outdoor calisthenics. I didn't know that. And I wear special clothing. And now that you're down here... You're bound to see me when I head out. Special clothing? A romper, Joel. I wear a romper. What's a romper? It's a one-piece exercise outfit. Oh. Very tight-fitting. And no one has seen me in it, not even Rose. But now, you may see me in it. You should be prepared. Okay. And then right afterward, he's like, I'm wondering if I should put it on. And (laughs) son-in-law is just like, no. No, uh, but I did watch the workout and it looks like what could have been a Jacqueline workout because he does take a little stool as his prop and Jack always used just a chair. So it totally could have been from that. But I read an article on Vulture and the costume designer took what Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino suggested from the script and then... She wanted to look for more inspiration for what they would have worked out in at the time. And she found Jacqueline and models after that. So that just made me so happy. Wowee, I love this. Yeah. Ah. So, yeah, he seemed like a pretty cool guy, just dedicated to fitness. I mean, he his career went on and on. And he looks a little familiar. When I looked him up in his old age, I, he looked a little familiar, but... Okay. Not enough that I knew where I'd seen him, so. Well, maybe if I need to refresh my workout routine <laughs> as these winter months begin and it's harder to get outside, maybe I need to do some Jacqueline workouts. Maybe. Nice little, you got some of that fun orchestral music as <laughs> a yes, soundtrack. I have always wanted my workouts to sound like I'm working out in an empty baseball stadium. Yeah, that same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's Jack Belaine. So I guess Jackson and Suki, their conversation is like Jack Belaine. Yeah. So I guess Suki is saying she feels... Well, I don't know if she feels exhausted. Jacqueline doesn't sound particularly exhausting. No, I mean, maybe it got more. He said that this was first episode, stick with him, and he'll up up the resistance more. But I, I feel like it probably stayed pretty tame. Because it's, you know, <laughs> with commercial breaks, it, it can't mm-hmm. be that intense. But I think she's basically saying she got to work out. Mm-hmm. And she and Jackson are adorable together. So great. Yeah. Uh, So what do we got next? Well, not long after Lorelai has this conversation with Suki about Jack LaLanne, it is a Friday night dinner time. And Rory and Lorelai are over at 
Emily and Richards, but Richard is on a business trip, quote-unquote. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Because Ooh. Emily and Richard have been arguing, and but they've been trying to not let R- Rory and Lorelai know this, but Rory and Lorelai do know this, <laughs> and they know that at least one or both of them is not really staying in the house. So, this is another attempt from Lorelai to weasel the truth out of her mother. I'm so sorry you have a final tomorrow. I thought you'd be free as a bird tonight. Them's the breaks. You could have stayed at school and studied if you had to. I hope you know that. You're playing different music. Hmm? The music, it's different. Some chick is singing. It's Blossom Deary. You don't like it? No, I like it fine. You've just never played it. You and Dad always play classical music. We just thought we'd try something new tonight. We? He's out of town, but you know what I mean. We talked about changing the music. Okay, Blossom Deary. Do you know who this is? I do not, but I love that scene because Lorelai is just picking, <laughs> picking away <laughs> at Emily. Uh. Same. I am at the same place. Had no idea who Blossom Deary is. Okay, once again, I'm just going to read you a little tidbit from her obituary because I just think it's a nice summary of her career and what made her memorable. She was a singer. And the New York Times says, The jazz pixie with a little girl voice and page boy haircut was a fixture in New York and London nightclubs for decades. A singer, pianist, and songwriter with an independent spirit who zealously guarded her privacy, Ms. Deary pursued a singular career that blurred the line between jazz and cabaret. An interpretive minimalist with caviar taste in songs and musicians, she was a genre unto herself. Rarely raising her sly, kittenish voice, Ms. Deary confided song lyrics in a playful style below whose surface layers of insinuation lurked. What a turn of phrase from the New York Times. I agree, and I think uh, the way you read that really took it to the next level. Thank you. I'm working on it. I was not familiar with Blossom Deary, but it sounds like she was, at least at one time, a pretty well-known voice. Some of her popular songs... But mostly she was a well-known haircut, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Mentioned her hair two, three times. It is... Yeah, you're right. She also had a very distinct voice, is another thing that she was memorable for. Some of her popular songs include I'm Hip, Wave... Deed I Do, and my personal favorite title, Peel Me a Grape. (laughs) Oh, I know that song. Peel Me. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Now, many of her songs were not originals of hers, but Mm. she ended up making a lot of her versions of them the quote-unquote standard. So she also did covers of really well-known songs, and like when I was just listening to her tonight while I was making dinner, which by the way... (laughs) I totally see why Emily picked this music for dinner time. It is perfect. And it is just so chill and enjoyable. Well, and it tells you how to make the recipe. You peel the grape. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That hit me in the right spot. Yes, she did inform me how to make my grape salad tonight. No, I did have grape tomatoes in my pesto pasta, but I did not um, (laughs) just enjoyed her 
vocal stylings <laughs> while I heated it up in the microwave Love this it. time because <laughs> I made it last night. Anyway, um, sorry. <laughs> so that was proud. a very silly joke, but it worked. Okay. So many of the songs that she covered, including the ones we talked about, she also did covers of songs like T for Two, which is a song you've probably heard of like 16 different versions of, and she has that. So she did a lot of standards. Basically, she was hanging a lot around a lot of nightclubs in the 1940s and early 50s. Once again, sounds a little like Mrs. Maisel. Mm-hmm. She became friends with a bunch of musicians like Charlie Parker, who you can just hear Babette's voice going, Charlie Parker! <laughs> <laughs> and Miles Davis, who said, allegedly, this can't be confirmed, but it's a popular rumor, that he said she was the only white woman who ever had soul. Hmm. So she hung out a lot in nightclubs in New York, she sang with a group called the Blue Flames, which I love. She later traveled to Paris and was in a group called the Blue Stars. (laughs) (laughs) No relation to the Blue Flames. I know. (laughs) She recorded a bunch of albums. She didn't really have huge hits as a songwriter, but she did always have an audience, once again, called a cult classic kind of audience. This one seems to be actually real as opposed to... What was the thing we were talking about recently? Oh, Lord oh, the Flatbush. right, yeah. With a supposed cult audience. Mm-hmm. And she ended up having her own record label so she could have more ownership of her music and how it was used. And she just had was really known for her memorable voice in this. Um, she really stuck out. She paved the way for artists like Feist and Nora Jones, who had this more Mm, breathy, light sound. And another fun connection with Gilmore Girls. I read a really nice obit tribute, very personal tribute from someone who loved Blossom Deary. She said she was the Dorothy Parker of jazz. Because she was so witty and had her own way with words and the way she delivered her lines. Yeah. So a little bit about this song that is playing in the background during this Friday night dinner. This is the song called You For Me. And I'm just going to read you a little bit of the lyrics. I won't sing them. You're welcome. (laughs) The lyrics in this song, You for me, only you can do the things that you do for me. Give a friendless heart an endless start to romance, then watch it dance. Your subtle glance gave me the chance to discover... That you're for me, I'm the fish at sea, and you're the lure for me. Take a look and see you've hooked the she who will agree quite cheerfully to be for you if it's you for me. Mm, Was Emily missing Richard? I know! Isn't that so perfect? Mm -hmm. And in several of the songs I listened to from Blossom Deary and mentioned in these articles that I read about her... She really does have a character to her voice. You can tell there's a story behind it. And in one song I listened to, it starts out and it kind of sounds like she's, it's called The Gentleman's a Dope is the name of the song. And it starts out like she's just saying, this guy's an idiot. But you can tell by the end of the song, she's really upset because she's in love with him. And she wishes Mm -hmm. that he loved her instead of some other girl. So that's why he's a dope. It's true. (laughs) But you can tell at the beginning it sounds like he's just a dummy. And by the end of it you're like, oh, she's just really upset because he doesn't love her. 
I can't is imagine. Still... Is she from the 50s, you said? That's when she really broke out is in the 40s and 50s. Okay. Um, but she was recording music all the way up to this century. The last song she recorded was um, in honor of 9-11. Hmm. Okay. It's just hard for me to imagine a 1940s, 1950s singer singing, He's a Dope. <laughs> <laughs> it seems so goofy. Well, I reckon we will put it on our Spotify playlist and you guys can listen to it. I think you'll enjoy Blossom Deary. And one more little tidbit about her. Two of her songs, I'm Always True to You in My Own Fashion and Everything I've Got Belongs to You, are featured in the background at Rory's 21st birthday party. Nice. So this is something that Emily returns to again when she hosts Rory's party. It is on brand. Uh, I'm loving that your references are repeated in Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls is good like that. They don't just put random pieces out there, you know. (laughs) Taylor, that was lovely. I'm going to listen to some Blossom Deary when I make my next grape salad. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can just hear, like, see the marketing for her record label, Blossom with Blossom. And that's her real name. Huh. Not a stage name. All right, parents. It worked out for her. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, are you okay with getting a, a little spooky now? Ooh, you know me, I love to say spooky. (laughs) So let's get spooky. Liz and TJ's wedding. Lots of hilarious moments. And so good. Here's one of them. Luke and Lorelai are just trying to keep it together. And uh, (laughs) they're not succeeding. Must be starting. Think they know any Zeppelin? Oh, Rosa is nice. Did she remind you of someone? Can you say Leslie Van Houten? So, did you know who Leslie Van Houten, Houten, Houten Scooten was? <laughs> Houten Scooten Boogie, a boogie woogie boy. <laughs> no, I sure did not know who Leslie Van Houten was. I didn't either. And it was even more confusing because Luke asked Lorelai if she reminded him of someone. Like, they looked familiar. Like, she looked familiar to them. So I was like, dude, she from the town? Like, what are they, (laughs) what does this mean? And then Lorelai says right away, Leslie Van Houten. This woman in their town was Leslie Van Houten, a convicted murderer and former member of the Manson family. Oh, my. So, you know, she moved to Stars Hollow, apparently, um, except that's impossible because she's in prison. She helped (laughs) during the Manson murder spree that night. So their plan was to murder all these wealthy white people and frame members of the Black Panther and ignite a race war. And then Mr. Manson's uh, grand plan in the end, what he just knew was going to happen was that the uh, black people in America would win, the white people would be dead, and then they would need a leader. So who are they going to turn to but this white man? And he was going... This is a well thought through plan. Yeah, he was going to (laughs) rule. Oh my gosh. 
Does that not say how much a part of the problem he was if he thought that after all the other white people were dead or in hiding or whatever, that he was going to lead? I, like, don't even have any intelligent comment on that. Because I've heard of the Manson murders, Mm -hmm. but I actually don't know that much about them. And when I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last year, which is set around the Manson murders, shout out to Quentin Tarantino, whom we've talked about before. I, the whole movie, just along the way, I thought, I just realized like with every scene, I was like, oh, I actually know nothing about the Manson murders. Like this is what I thought it was. And this movie is doing something completely different. I literally know nothing about this. Yeah, I knew nothing either. I knew that they killed people, but I didn't know over how like what the period of time was yeah. or anything but yeah there was a they I'm sure they did other stuff before this but when they were arrested was when they went on this killing spree and killed Sharon Tate right that was her name yes shout yeah. out to Valley of the Dolls mhm yeah so she was convicted and she has been up for parole more than 20 times each time denied The sister of Sharon Tate, she's testified at the different parole hearings. And, you know, in in prison, Leslie Van Houten has apparently been a good prisoner. But the sister says that because Leslie hasn't really given a... To her, you know, this is her thoughts on it. Hasn't given a, a good enough reason or hasn't... Help them understand why she helped in this killing spree. So it just doesn't seem like she's safe to have out in the world. I I don't really have a, an opinion on this because in some respects, you know, it's been how many years? You know, five, six decades. Mm-hmm. She was in a cult. I, really, that truly was a cult. It kind of brainwashed thinking that this Manson guy was the savior She's she renounced him soon after she was arrested, but um yeah that's Leslie Van Houten. So I here's here's what I want to know with this. So Amy Sherman Palladino, it's like hey, got this wedding scene. Luke and Laurel are gonna be sitting together, cracking a few jokes. Um, we need some people for this wedding, so have a bunch of extras come audition. Okay, you 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 great, and then. Same so Sherman Palladino in the room, and she looks over, and she says, Hey, that one extra over there. Doesn't she look like that murderer, Leslie Van Houten? <laughs> hey, hey, extra, come over here. Oh, great, wow, Amy Sherman Palladino was talking to you. Uh, hey, so you, you know, you look a lot like that convicted murderer. We want to call that out in the show, so could you make kind of a creepy face? <laughs> like, what was that conversation <laughs> like with this poor extra? Was she brought on to look like Leslie Van Houten, or did they come up with that after the fact? Well, looking at pictures of Leslie Van Houten, side by side with this girl, they don't look that much alike. Right, it's more that scary look. And I took a, I have a screenshot we'll put on our Tumblr, and it's in our folder if you want to look, um, of the chick at the wedding. Like, she yes. makes a scary face, but they say that she looks familiar as she's skipping down the aisle. <laughs> but, yeah. 
maybe they're trying to like go into the idea that she looks like she's part of a cult or she's kind of doing the flower child thing. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, Leslie Van Houten, she was very much look, you know, like a hippie. Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. though. Yeah. That is a great question, because I really don't think they look super alike. Um, I mean, they are both white women with not even the same color hair. Big eyes, though. True. Definitely not dressed alike, because this woman is dressed like for a Renaissance fair. Yeah. But I think it's more about the intensity. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I just hope she hasn't carried that with her, that she looks like (laughs) a member of the Manson family. Yes. Young actress, if you are listening to this, we don't think you really look like Leslie Van Houten. You look like your own person. Uh. Well, should we talk about what happens right after this little dance dance capade? Oh, yes. This spooky moment with Leslie Van Houten not look alike. Here comes one of my all-time favorite musical moments in Gilmore Girls. You like Forever it more than always. the musical and the revival? A hundred percent better. <laughs> Here comes the song. Our favorite song about love. As kids we shared our toys with all the girls and boys. Barrel of monkeys, your battleship sunk me. Please recall the joy. Willow, clue, mouse trap, passion spirograph, kaleidoscope spinning, Yahtzee, I'm winning. Think of how we laughed. But today we share our love. Today we share our love. For love is the greatest toy around, around, around. Oh, Taylor, do you just relate so much to this? Just do you tear up a little? When well, you it? know I love all things that make love a game because <laughs> love is should be gamified and made a competition, which is why I think The Bachelor is a really important um, and positive force on our culture and society. I'm missing that so. right now for you, by the way. <laughs> um, you're welcome. I'm improving your life. <laughs> Well, we got to talk about these games, though, because if you have to gamify my love, I would rather it be any of these games than The Bachelor. Oh, man. <laughs> and some of these are well known, but some of these are not. So, Taylor, what you're saying is that you would like your love life to be like Barrel of Monkeys? <laughs> yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. I want... If you ask me how my relationship is going, I want to be like, you know what? It's a barrel of monkeys. (laughs) Barrel of monkeys. That was released in 1965. It was created in 1961. And uh, in 1964, it was sold. Came out in 1965 by Lakeside Toys, which I've never heard of. But now it's produced by the Milton Bradley Company within Hasbro, which I'm sure we all, if we didn't know that we know about Hasbro... You've got it in your house somewhere. They make yes. lots of games. So yeah, it's a barrel of monkeys. 
sure we've all seen it. But, you know, I've never really played. I've just always, like, seen kids with a barrel monkey and they just try to make a line. But you actually are supposed to, like, make a chain and keep scooping up more and then you lose, you stop your count once the monkey is dropped and then the next person can see how long they get it. Hmm. But, but like, you pick it up with the chain you already have, I'm pretty sure. I don't know. It was ranked number 53 uh, by Time Magazine on their 2011 all-time 100 greatest toys list. I'm not really sure wow. why, because it's a barrel of monkeys. I mean, I like monkeys. Um, but hey, it appears in other pop culture. It's in the Toy Story series. I was thinking of that. Mm-hmm. In 2012, Dartmouth College student Parker Finney led a fundraising group that built a chain of 5,999 monkeys, longest ever. In the game show Family Game Night, which uh, featured a lot of Hasbro games, families played Barrel of Monkeys for a prize by arranging the chains of monkeys from shortest to longest. That sounds great. Um, it appears <coughs> in movies and other TV shows as well. Like in Iron Man 3, Tony Stark likens an air rescue to playing Barrel of Monkeys. All right. It's been a minute <laughs> since I've watched that one. Um, yeah. Iron Man 3 was weird to me. Wait, no, the second one, too. I don't really remember either of them. I think Iron Man 2 might be the worst Marvel movie. That's the one this with the This is a side tangent, wrote. but... Yeah, I think it's either that or, like, the first two Thors. Pretty bad. Um, I guess it's hard for me to think of, like, the first of any series to be bad, right? Because it's, like, introducing. So I didn't think the first one was bad. But Iron Man 2, I have... I have one memory. I can remember one scene. Iron Man 3, I remember a few more scenes. So Iron Man 3 is fun. It's a lot. Not as good as Iron Man 1. Yeah, sure. That has been my TED Talk. So, um, Barrel of Monkeys, that's one option for your love life. Taylor, what's the next one? Hmm. Well, the next one is another game also featured in Toy Story. Battleship. Your Battleship Sunk Me. This one sounds familiar. It came out in 1967 from Milton Bradley. What do you know? (laughs) However, this is actually, and I didn't know this, this was a public domain pencil and paper game that has gone through a lot of different names and versions. So originally you could play this with pencil and paper, Hmm. and then Milton Bradley kind of made it super cool. And made it into this, like, plastic game board. And that's when you actually have the pegs. And you try to guess where somebody's battleship is on their grid. And you get the custom pegs and that kind of thing. But you can play this with pencil and paper. There have been other... Yeah. There have been other names that this has gone by, including Salvo. I don't understand why it was called that. But I think that's one of its earliest names. You could also find it under the name Combat the Battleship Game. By the way, this goes back to the 1930s. They also, in the 40s, Milton Bradley started publishing a pad and pencil game called Broadsides, the Game of Naval Strategy. There was another one called Sink It. There was another one called Warfare Naval Combat. (laughs) Wow. You could also find it under Swiss Navy, Sunk, Convoy, Wings, and Naval Battle. 
And you can actually find examples of this all the way back to World War One. Apparently, Russian officers were playing a version of this game with pen and paper. Were they playing or were they planning? <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Who's to say? And I would like to point out that there is also a film adaptation of this board game yeah. called Battleship from 2012. How was that? <laughs> I watched it recently. I've watched a lot of bad action movies this year. Like, Staying Home, bad action movies, and bad rom-coms. Or just, like, <laughs> mediocre. Not bad. Mediocre. Like, there's something really comforting about the formula to it for I me. I agree. Mediocre rom-coms? Yes. Yeah. Me- not Hallmark rom-coms. No. I mean, like... Those are not mediocre. Those are ridiculous. Hey, if you're yeah. about to watch a Hallmark movie, here's a plot. Big City Chick... Goes to a small town, probably for her job or her family, meets a small town guy, they're friends, then they get mad at each other, then they're romantically involved. And it all leads up to some sort of small town event. And she probably has to quit her big city job to go, like, run a Christmas tree farm or a candle-making venture with him. Yep. Well, that is not what Battleship (laughs) is about. Battleship is a 2012 film starring Taylor Kitsch, Alexander Skarsgård, Rihanna, and Liam Neeson. (laughs) And somehow, it's not my battleship versus your battleship. It is U.S. and Japanese battleships teaming up against aliens. And that's all you really need to know. Oh my. It's not not good. Um, But I will say, one cool moment this was like the only original thing where i was like oh this was an innovative idea i wish this had been the whole movie they only the only battleship that is available to them because of alien force fields sorry it's just the (laughs) way it is is an old World War II battleship. And all these old World War II vets just happened to be there because they were honoring them that day. Like, it was a day of, like, let's come back to this boat and give you guys all medals and, like, thank you for your service in World War II. And there's a cool scene where all these old World War II vets, who are the only guys who know how to make this boat function, like, they run to all the different parts of the boats and they, like, go back to their old positions and defeat the aliens. That's awesome. So watch that one scene. It's cool. <laughs> the rest of it's just okay. So Battleship. There you go. A little bit of history. Goes back all the way to at least World War One. Yeah, Battleship. That seems like a healthy option for a way to describe your love life. Yes, like it is a battleship. <laughs> um, You know, how about Wheelow, though? Or Magnet Space Wheel, it is also known as. I don't think so. So that's the toy where it's like you got you hold on to a handle and it's got like this metal kind of track that goes up and down and then this wheel spins in it. It's like locked in and it's got magnets that propel it. And you can mm-hmm. kind of flick your wrist with it and it'll you can make it go faster. I don't uh-huh. know if again visual. I don't that's, that's <laughs> what I got. I remember playing with this. It was fun. Uh, I think I had owned one at some point. It was introduced in 1953 by Maggie Magnet Inc. of New York City. That's that's really all I can say about it. 
You know what? I've definitely seen these around before, but I don't I don't think I ever had one. It seems like it's pretty limited on the amount of activity you can use with it. Yeah, it's just like a fun little little toy to mess with when you're waiting at the soda shop. Kind of like a fidget spinner. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, our next game on this one. This one is a lot more familiar. Have you ever played Clue? Uh, I've, I've played Clue a few times in my life, and I've won it most of the time. Yes. Ugh. Way to go. Proud of you. Thanks. Well, did you know that this game first came out in 1948? I did not. This I is a it was clear... more like 1949, but I guess I was off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll start peeling your grape. Listen to me while I school you on Clue. <laughs> I think most of us know how to play Clue. If you don't, quick summary, basically somebody's murdered and you gotta figure out who it is. You gotta figure out which character did it, which weapon they used, and what room it happened in. Because obviously those are the three things that a police officer needs to know when investigating a murder. <laughs> that would help. <laughs> And the inventor of this game was named Anthony Ernest Pratt. He lived in England, and he was still in the country during World War II. He was in the Home Guard, and he <laughs> he thought of this game during the war because he realized there was really no social life with people having to stay indoors all the time. They had to be ready for air raids and blitzes all the time. So like it was really difficult to get out. So he came up with a board game and they had a friend who had also invented a board game nearby that I was not familiar with. That's fun. <laughs> but because of this, they had a connection to a board game distributor and he came up with this idea for Clue. And they decided that his wife was a good artist. Her name was Elva. So she did all the drawings and they came up with this prototype. And at this time, detective novels were very popular. So things like Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes, mm. these were really popular. And they were inspired by these books to come up with this mystery game. There's one book called The Body in the Library by Agatha Christie that came out in 1942 that actually has a lot of similarities with the story frame in the game. So they think that was probably one of the inspirations. Hmm. And some fun facts about Clue. When he first filed for a patent, Pratt had different weapons that were involved so some mm. of the original weapons included an axe a cudgel a round fizzing bomb a piece of rope a dagger a revolver a hypodermic syringe a bottle of poison and a poker and an anvil no anvil where did all the anvils go no wow those so, are some <laughs> brutal weapons mm -hmm. now we've got a candlestick Yes. So as you know, not all of those made it through. We have a candlestick now and some others. And there were more characters originally. There was also a Mr. Brown and a Mr. Gold. Now there's really only six characters. Um, Mrs. White was Nurse White. 
actually the original murder victim was going to be Dr. Black, and now it's Mr. Body, which is a way better pun for a murder victim. (laughs) And originally it was going to be Colonel Yellow, but people at wartime did not like the association that Yellow had for a colonel with being a coward. So he became Colonel Mustard. Nice. Mm Mm-hmm. And another fun fact about this board game distributor. (laughs) You're going, oh, no. What could this possibly be? I think this is actually really cool. So this group called Waddington's that designed or distributed the board games for them, they actually had been doing some covert operations for MI9. He had been slipping tools, or this company had been slipping actual escape tools into board games destined for British prisoner of war camps. And they made them look like board games so they could get through the, like, POW restrictions. And they would Hmm. let them through. And they actually, like, sent out real weapons and real um, war information through these board games. And then he actually went out to make real board games that were just for fun. (laughs) That's really cool. And was there also oh, was there also a movie based off of this game? I was just about to tell you that. You got there... all the movie games. <laughs> yes. Uh there's a very fun 1980s movie called Clue. Have you seen this movie? No, but I actually was supposed to watch it last weekend and then didn't. And so I'm going to probably try to watch it this weekend. So don't tell me what happened. Oh, I won't. Uh, I couldn't if I tried. <laughs> it is a very fun movie. I highly recommend it. It's a little bit like Knives Out, if you guys are wanting a more modern comparison. It's a little zanier than Knives Out. Much okay. sillier. And if you are a British listener, you might know this game under a different name. The British name of the game, an original name, was Cluedo. Uh, Because it was a pun on the idea of Clue and Ludo, which is a late 19th century English board game that in Latin means I play. However, American audiences are not familiar with that game. So they dropped the dough to come to the United (laughs) States. Nice. I like Clue. Same. Next up. Man, this guy could fit a lot of games in one song. Mousetrap. I don't think I've ever played this. It was published by Ideal, different game company, in 1963. And it was one of the first mass-produced three-dimensional board games. And this is where, over the course of the game, you create kind of a Rube Goldberg-like mousetrap, and then try to trap each other. And uh, in in the 1990s, Mousetrap was adapted to a game show in the UK, speaking of our... British friends called Motor Mouth and child contestants take the place of a mice of the mice in the life size that in a life size board game. There was also a Cluedo game show in Britain. I didn't mm. mention that, but look at that. Look at the yeah. Brits turning board games into TV shows. <laughs> uh yeah, Mousetrap, not one that I don't think I've played it. I've seen it. Like it's, I've been in its presence, but I don't think I've played it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever played it either. Another game I have not played. Have you ever played Bash? No, but it sounds no. fun. <laughs> I had a lot of trouble finding much information on this game. Mm. It is not in production anymore. If you want to buy it, you can like 
buy a 1965 edition of it for $50 plus $7 shipping on Amazon. Like that kind of situation. It's a mm. collector's item. So you can find versions to buy, but this is not in production anymore. It is a little bit younger than some of the like board games we've talked about. It's meant for ages five and up. And basically, it's a you're stacking these little discs on top of each other. There's yellow and red discs. You stack them on top of each other, and they look like they're sandwiched between a man. So there's like feet on the bottom and head on the top. Mm-hmm. And you have to hit it with this hammer, which is a plastic hammer, and try and like knock out pieces without knocking over the whole thing. So it's like basically Jenga. Huh, okay. It's not a very sturdy looking game and I can, there's really not much to it. I'm not surprised this game is not in production anymore. But one weird thing about it, (laughs) if you get this old set from the 1960s or whatever, not only does it have all the pieces for this stacked man that you need to try and hit out the pieces and get his head and feet connected without knocking the tower over, you could give an opponent an Ofui card. <laughs> and if you play the Ofui version of the game, you get the card if you knock out two discs in a row successfully. And then you can give it to another player who has to bash out a piece from the stack without like, m- making the stack nice and taut together again. Mm-hmm. And that's really the only, like, interesting twist on the game. Like, oh, fooey, I can't straighten this stack of discs out. (laughs) Okay. I don't, I don't think it sounds very fun, so. Yeah. Um, I think we're just, yeah. Sorry to bash that game, but it doesn't sound fun. Well, next up we got one that is near and dear to my heart. Spirograph. It's a little drawing device. You put your pencil in it. And in one of the little holes, and it's a disc that you put on the center, and then you hold your pencil down on top of the paper, and then you just follow this disc that makes helps you create perfect circles. And so you can start with one color in one spot, and then choose another color for a different hole, and then you've just got this really cool rainbow of spirals, and it can make big spirals and little ones, and just really pretty. And my Nana and I used to play with that and so I would make all these pretty colors pretty drawings and um now let me tell you a little bit about the math of this just kidding not going to (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that was I I want to get one of those and maybe play with my nephew with that that'd be fun to show him make all the little Mm -hmm. spirals so yeah it's just kind of a Calm. It was um, first sold in 1965. All these are like from the 60s, that mm-hmm. right around that time. Yeah. Made by a British engineer. Yeah. Did you ever play with the, one of those? Make drawings? No, I am very unfamiliar mm-hmm. with spirographs. Okay. So yeah, thank you for fun. filling me in. I maybe did something similar to that in art class growing up, but I don't think I ever had like a branded spirograph or yeah. what that's meant to be. Um, one of those tools that's meant to be a spirograph. (laughs) My last game I'm going to talk to you about is a little bit of an anomaly in our list because this one actually first came out in 1817. Wow. Yeah. 
This is a kaleidoscope. Did you ever play with these as a kid? Absolutely. Same. Yes. I like to say my love life is like a kaleidoscope. <laughs> That's maybe my favorite. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> and basically, this is just a little scientific phenomenon. It is, you have at least two mirrors in a tube. You stick them at a, the perfect angle, and you can spin it around, and things look real funky. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of how they envision drugs in all movies. It basically looks like you're looking through a kaleidoscope. And these are kind of quaint now, but when they first came out, they were a huge hit. So in one article I read, they said the popularity of these things in the early 1800s was like a couple years ago when Pokemon Go came out and like oh everyone gosh. was playing. Like uh, I saw kids on the street playing at night and I was like, get out of the road, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> like people <laughs> just trying to catch their Pokemon wherever they are. So apparently there was a huge craze mania for them, and it was also a big deal because it was portable, and it was really easy for people to carry around. So that was not typical for games and toys at the time, hmm. and they're really easy to make. So they were easy to produce and then also easy to make knockoffs from the guy who originally patented them. Apparently... There were newspaper articles about fights between sellers, people writing poems about them. <laughs> people debated whether it was really an original invention. They talked about how boys would walk into walls while looking through their kaleidoscopes or running into cyclists on the street. So oh, this was a huge deal. People were yeah. super into these. So by the middle of the 20th century, though, kind of around the time all these other board games are coming out, they were pretty uh, not super exciting anymore because you had things like Bash and Spirograph <laughs> and other things to keep you busy. But then there is a woman named Cozy Baker, and I love that name. She sounds like she'd be friends with Blossom Deary. <laughs> and she really revived the interest in kaleidoscopes. She was independently wealthy and between 1985 and 2002, she wrote seven books about kaleidoscopes. Wow. Yeah. And there are, like, societies for people who love kaleidoscopes now. Is there a She's cult been... following? Yes. <laughs> She's been called the first lady of kaleidoscopes, the kaleidoscope queen, the patron saint of kaleidoscopes, all these things. And she just she, loves kaleidoscopes? <laughs> yes. She's been compared to a 17th or 18th century patron of the arts. She spent her life putting kaleidoscope artists in galleries together so they would know each other and encourage each other. And when she died in 2010, she had over a thousand kaleidoscopes, wow. including one made from shark skin and alabaster, another made from an elephant's tusk, a $12,000 electric kaleidoscope. <laughs> One in the shape of a Chrysler building. And she um, said that kaleidoscopes were nourishment for the soul. Hmm. Yes. Kinda, now I feel like I want to own a kaleidoscope. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're pretty inexpensive. Go go get one. And there are <laughs> places like a business called Kaleidoscopes to You. They sell many kaleidoscopes and some of their greatest hits in their business's history include giving party favors for Yoko Ono's 79th birthday and they gave scopes for a gift basket that George W. Bush gave to White House staffers. <laughs> so 
Would, uh, what do you think Jess would say holding up his kaleidoscope? Nice spin. Uh, <laughs> spin that kaleidoscope. You should work nice. for Bush. Here's the last one. Yahtzee, I'm winning. Everybody knows Yahtzee. Yahtzee has, so, it's become, though, a word that we say, you know, like for, like, kind of like a, oh, yeah, like bingo or mm. <laughs> um, bullseye. You know, yes. Yahtzee, like it's, we use it, and it's just because it's a beloved game, and people get very excited if they get a Yahtzee, which <laughs> I know I have before. I think, like, one time I remember playing with my family and I got a Yahtzee, which is when you get all dice of the same number. Thank you for reminding me, because it's been so long since I played <laughs> that I forgot what a Yahtzee actually was. Yeah, so you're rolling die, you're, you get to roll three times, five die, and you can keep some as they are and just re-roll some of them, or you can re-roll all of them. And at the end, you get points for what you have. Yeah, it was uh, made by Milton Bradley, now Hasbro. And, uh, you know, it's still a big part of people's lives. In fact, in 2011, a uh, three sons killed their mother over Yahtzee. <gasps> or one killed her, the other two helped cover it up. You know, all involved. They said that she wanted to play Yahtzee, and the boys didn't, and she got mad and grabbed a few things and stormed out of the house, and they killed her. Unclear, but, um, spooky. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm just, like, processing that story you're telling me. What a horrible thing. Yeah, it, it is a terrible thing. Um, so yeah, Yahtzee, though. Who hasn't, who hasn't played Yahtzee? It's been a long time. If your mother asks you to play Yahtzee, just say yes. <laughs> okay, so going back through this list. As kids, we shared our toys with all the girls and boys. Barrel of monkeys, your battleship sunk me. Please recall the joy. Wheelow clue mousetrap, bash and spirograph. Kaleidoscope spinning, Yahtzee I'm winning. <laughs> Think of how we laughed, but today we share our love. Today we share our love, for love is the greatest toy around. What do you think the deeper intellectual meaning of this song is, Kyla? I don't. (laughs) I mean, kaleidoscope spinning. You do spin a kaleidoscope. Yahtzee, I'm winning. We say Yahtzee, you know, for winning... But no, it's just a list of toys. Is it strange that the games he's referencing are so violent? Like Clue is about a murder. Bash, you're trying to bash this guy to pieces. Yeah, Battleship. Mousetrap, ouch. Mousetrap. Good point. Spirograph, that's got to be the, the worst of them all. <laughs> yeah. It's just... <laughs> Much like our episode, a mishmash of games. Yes. It is a very strange list of games, including some that, like, are not around anymore. Some that are very popular. I mean, do you really want your relationship to be compared to anything in this list? No. Maybe Maybe a kaleidoscope. Yeah, maybe a kaleidoscope. (laughs) Yeah. You could say my relationship is like Yahtzee. 
It's a jumble. A game of chance. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh. I think, I mean, you know how sometimes we do our research and we're like, wow, this is a great layer deeper meaning mm-hmm. to what we're trying to talk about. I really feel like we have just confirmed that this song is a bunch of nonsense. Yeah. It's a good thing this guy was not allowed to be the town troubadour. Agreed. He did a great <laughs> little farmer's market that sent Taylor in a tizzy. But mm-hmm. Beautiful no. sprouts. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is confirmation he should not be the town troubadour. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. So, Kyla? So, Taylor? That's our show? That's our show! Woo! Um, Yahtzee, we're winning. Yeah, and Yahtzee, we're winning uh, our runtime. This is our longest episode in a while. So, hopefully you weren't spooked by the runtime when you started this episode. (laughs) And you've made it all the way to the end with us. We hope so. Guys, if you didn't make it to the end of this episode, be sure to uh, make it to the end of our next one. Because we've got a fun one. Oh, yes. Cannot wait to talk about our next episode. I have literally done at least 12 hours of prepping for it. Oh, my gosh. I feel like in some ways we've been prepping for this. I would say, yes, I would say I've been prepping for this one since December 2001. (laughs) And I just, like, didn't even know it at the time. Now you do. Now I do. Be sure to subscribe so you can listen to us next week wherever you listen. Uh, check us out on Twitter at So It's a mm-hmm. Show. Send mm-hmm. us an email to try to get hints about our next episode. So it's mm-hmm. or listen to this teaser for the next step. Well, what else happened? Nothing. We spent the evening together. We danced. He walked me home. And then he asked me to a movie. All of these things individually do not add up to dating. But together, I don't know. And there was this moment when he walked me home where I thought, I don't know. Did you say yes? When? To the movie. Did you say yes? Yes. That sounds like dating to me. But maybe he didn't mean it as a date thing. Maybe he just needs to get out of the house. And since I'm currently one of the women sitting home thinking if I could only find a man like Aragorn, he picked me. And this was after a lot of career... I don't know. You totally throw me off with that peel <laughs> joke. <laughs> it was so simple. I'm no, so proud I appreciate that I got it so you. much. So good. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to throw you off, though. But, no, you're uh, fine. <laughs> I was just trying to think of a transition, and all I can think of is your peel a grape joke. 